You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Would you turn with me in your your Bibles to James chapter 5? And this morning I'm going to go a little easier. Rather than read the entire remaining verses, I just want to read verse 13 uh, to keep it short. If you don't mind standing with me as we read this together. If you've been with us, you know that we've been talking in these last few weeks about what I've referred to as the seven habits of highly effective Christians and highly effective churches. And and the bottom line is that habits are different than just actions or even disciplines. The things that have become so intuitive that we just do them without having to think about them. And these are things that God wants to ingrain so deeply into our lives that they become really lifestyle. They're not things that we have to even actively or consciously work on. It's just something that we have become so acquainted with. The the furrow is so deep that we basically make it a part of our lifestyle. We've talked about being truthful as being the first place to begin. Last week we talked about being prayerful. Today we're going to talk about being worshipful. And we base that upon this passage in verse 13 where he says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that as we look to your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would not only direct us, but you would speak to us, Lord, in in that inimical way, Lord, that you have of somehow dividing between the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, Lord. Your Holy Spirit has a way of getting to the very core of who we are as people. That you speak to us, Lord, with a profound and divine transparency that is transformational. And so, God, we're here for one reason. We, we have come today to worship you. And part of that worship is, Lord, to know how we can live our lives in a way that is more pleasing, that we might actually be, as crazy as it sounds, that we might be a blessing to you as your children. Help us in this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Music, I don't know if you're aware of this, is is one of the great mysteries of the universe. I mean, researchers have found, and I quote one, he says, music accompanies every human milestone. It's found among every people on earth as far back as we can go in human history. From the most ancient to the most modern, from the most primitive to the most sophisticated societies, people everywhere always have always made music. And it's ironic because we think, yeah, they made music, they took a a dead bone and they beat it against a rock and they made music with it. No, actually, we found ancient instruments, bones that were hollowed out and holes carved into it to make them into flutes and things of that nature. Not only did they make music, but they made music much the same as you and I make music today. There was a level of understanding of tone and note and and, and sequence and scale that really is kind of confounding to those who study ancient archaeology and archaeological sociology. But even studies on babies suggest that music is something that's hardwired into the human being. Uh, one child psychologist by the name of Sandra Trehub, who is uh, at the University of Toronto, studied lullabies worldwide, internationally, historically, lullabies, that m- songs that moms sing to comfort their little babies. And she found that they are essentially the same all over the world. 
It says babies seem to have an innate appreciation for music. And then they said when they played a lullaby and then suddenly threw a, a dissonant note, and what they call an anomalous note in there that doesn't go with the, with the rhyme or with the flow of the music, that it basically says when it intrudes on the recording, the child suddenly turns his head towards the speaker and he said that he'll do this repeatedly over and over again every time a dissonant note is sounded. In other words, the child has an innate sense of music, an innate sense of harmony, that the child literally is processing the music, and when it doesn't sound right, it reacts negatively to that sound. What she also found in her studies was that babies, um, their stress hormones actually decrease as their mothers sing to them. So that even though women have never taken courses in how to uh, lower the stress levels in their children, they came to understand that when you hold them and you sing to them and you rock them and you comfort them by those melodic tones, there's a quieting and a comfort that begins to take place. In fact, we know this is true not only of babies, this is true of adults as well. I reminded the story of King Saul who began to be troubled by, it says, an evil spirit. It says, whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp and then Saul would feel better and the tormenting spirit would go away. That's why the old poet William Cosgrove back in 1697 wrote, he says, music has charms to soothe a savage beast. Harmony to calm my many griefs. This is probably because music has a way of touching us in places where words or pictures and other sensory perceptions are unable to reach. In fact, neurosciences have found that unlike most core brain functions, which are often associated with a particular part of the brain, as we see in the slide on the left. We find that there is the emotional area, there's the auditory area, there's a visual area, the sensational area, the will and thought, uh, motor area, where they've isolated the activity in the brain based upon what thing a person is doing. But when we talk about music, it doesn't limit itself to a place, but becomes radiated throughout the entire brain so that the thing that they've discovered is music is the one thing that we do that uses the most dimension of our brain so that we don't just hear music, we feel it and we think about it and we are touched by it, we absorb it. So it's a holistic experience. That's why in education of children, they have found that children who are trained in music often become much better at mathematics because the brain has developed a sense of the proportion of, of notes and scales and mathematical dimensions, because in the end, music, or at least scored music, is nothing else but mathematics. There are so many fascinating things about it, because even one study with stroke victims has found that people, because of a stroke, who have lost their ability to speak, when they're introduced to music that is familiar to them, they cannot speak, but they, learn, but they are able to sing even though they have no speech patterns. So they start communicating with them through song and have them sing their responses and suddenly they are expressing themselves. People who before were believed would never speak again and maybe in the conventional sense will not because that part of the brain has been damaged, but the part of the brain which is the entire brain that makes music never seems to die until the entire brain dies. 
So that they find that when biologists have found that uh, music can raise or lower certain chemicals and hormones in your body, and they can both calm us and energize us, they can arouse us, they can even enrage us. Intuitively, men have understood this, that music, in fact, has the ability to move masses of people to conform to a behavior that someone might want to create. Whether it be the Nazis' rousing chorus of Deutschland über alles, Germany over all, and they're part of their megalomania passion. Or the civil rights movement singing, We Shall Overcome. Or Donald Trump, as his stage intro music was, We're Not Going to Take It Anymore by that gospel group, Twisted Sister. The point is that music moves us. It shapes our moods. It taps into deep-seated emotional crevices in our souls. And advertisers have understood this for a long time. In fact, have you ever noticed recently that so many popular songs are used in commercial today because they found music in jingles was effective, but when you can connect a popular song that tickles a warm spot in your heart and your mind, when it can reach back into some nostalgic moment and connect it to their product, that people develop a much more favorable response to what they're trying to sell because they meld those things together. They have an emotional response. And let me tell you, many marketers want you to have an emotional response to the product because you're not going to look at it that closely. You're not going to want to kick the tires. You're just going to say, I could recapture my youth if I was driving that convertible, (laughs) even though I never had a convertible in my youth. Anyway, but dreams are made of that stuff. But you have to understand that Well, one of the sad realities is when you get in the elevator and the music you're hearing is from your youth, you're old. (laughs) But even elevator music is designed to calm you, to make you feel safe, and not to think about the fact that you're locked in a tiny box with a bunch of other people moving at a fairly fast pace up up or down a building that people would have panic attacks, but they hear the soothing music and they kind of relax. After all, it's the Beatles. (laughs) But one of the things that's important, I think, to note is that never before in the history of the world has music had a greater and more widespread impact than it does today, especially in our culture. And why is that the case? Well, one reason is it's, it's everywhere all the time. In fact, the Council on Communications and Media did this whole report on the effects of music upon children. And one of the things they found is that the average teenager spends 40 hours a week listening to music. And they can do that today because of all the devices that make a views, a music available any place, any time. And it's not that they listen to music exclusively, they just tend to have it on all the time. And how many of us have witnessed our, our children even and grandchildren walking around with earbuds in and not being able to hear a word you're saying, or at least that's what they tell you when you want them to clean their bedroom. That they spend more time listening to music than they do watching TV or even engaging in social media. Even children as young as eight years of age average three hours of music listening every day. Even at eight years of age. 
But not, it's not just an issue that music is everywhere. It's also, it's not just the music, it's the lyrics. They go on to say that said music plays an important role in the socialization of children and adolescents. What does that socialization mean? Socialization means it, it, it's how you adjust yourself to the rest of the people and the rest of the world around you. So to be socialized means you learn how to live in community with other people. And it says music has become one of the prime movers, more than TV, more than the internet. It has become music that shapes and molds the minds of young people and tells them how to fit into culture. But that's not always positive. Because there are certain kind of music that are more like anarchism than they are community. In fact, they found in studies of heavy metal and rap music that kids who spend a lot of time listening to that kind of music are more pessimistic about life. They have more negative feelings about themselves. They have more emotional struggles such as depression. They're, they're more prone to engage in risky behavior. They get lower grades. They have more problems in school, more conflicts with authority, and higher levels of sexual aggression. And that's not terribly surprising if you sip, simply sit back and do spend yourself taking in a heavy diet of something like Twisted Sisters and you're screaming at the top of your lungs with your music, I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, yes, you are. <laughs> because if you don't, you'll end up behind bars. The point is, this permeates the airwaves but it also permeates the thought waves in your own head. In fact, it kind of proves what Paul said as being correct when he told the Corinthians, don't let yourselves be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good behavior. Now we're accustomed to hearing garbage in, garbage out, and, and I'm not saying that the human brain is just like a computer. It, it's so much far beyond that and so much more sophisticated than that. But the simple fact is that we are influenced by the things that we allow in through the gateways of our mind, the gateways of our ears, the gateways of our eyes. The sensory expressions begin to affect us so that as we move into more and more devices that bypass normal human interaction, we find that people are becoming not only socially isolated, they have maybe have 900 Facebook friends, but if they get a flat tire, they don't have one person they can call to help them. And not only are they socially isolated, but in their own mind, that's a kind of isolation emotionally that begins to develop as they either begin to drift off into a fantasy world of nostalgia or they drift off into a, a world of alienation. But they're not equipped to deal with life as it really is. I mean, considering how influential music can be, it's not surprising that it's played a major role in both Judaism and in the church. I mean, there are over a thousand references in the Bible to songs, singing, music, various kinds of instrumentation. I mean, there are some people saying, well, you know, all church music should be a cappella, that you sing it without instrumentation, and uh, which I have nothing against other than the fact that I like instruments. But they, they had lots of instruments. They had lyres, which was kind of like a, a guitar harp type of thing. They had 10-string, 12-string, 16-string uh, lyres. They had harps. They had tambourines, trumpets. 
the shofar, which is a horn that you can blow, a ram's horn. I have a couple of them, in fact, in my office. Should have brought them out to show you how good I am. Um, it's a wonderful way of irritating the entire staff. Um, they had pipes and flutes and horns and shakers and cymbals and bagpipes and drums. And not surprising, therefore, that David and Solomon both appointed skilled singers and musicians to lead worship in the temple. Or literally, as it says in Second Chronicles, to give thanks and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. In fact, over 66 times in the Psalms, we're told, sing praises to the Lord. So there is a rich biblical heritage that's long and legendary of the role that music has played in the church. In fact, when we just read through the book of Psalms, we have to understand that they were written not just as poetry, they were written as lyrical music to be sung to. They were the songs of worship and the songs that were sung in the temple in Jerusalem. Music was also important in the early church. Although I have to admit, there's less that we know about music in the church because it isn't strongly highlighted. And yet we find Paul making statements like this in Ephesians 5.19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. There's an important progression there that we'll come back to. But secondly, he said in, second, in Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You see, essentially what I believe Paul was saying is the church should imitate on earth what is taking place in heaven. You remember when Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew 6, in verse 10, he says, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is going on in heaven? Well, Revelation chapter 5 tells us. There it says, as John is in this vision of the heavenly realm, says, then I saw the Lamb of God standing in the center of the throne, speaking of Jesus, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they sang a new song. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, 10,000 times 10,000, and they circled the throne, and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, I don't know if that means that when you and I get to heaven, that's all we're going to do. If it is, the good news is this, you'll be a great musician with an incredible voice unlike the present reality that most of us live in right now, okay? You know, most of us, if we want to sing along, they say, turn the volume up so we can't hear you singing along. But I got to tell you, when I'm in the shower, my voice is incredible. Anyway, 
But the whole point is that we find that singing is not just something that we add on as an addendum to what we do as Christians in our life. It is intended to be central. And again, I come back to when we're sitting here listening to me talk or you're sitting and reading your Bible, there's parts of your brain that are activated and there's other parts of your brain that are really on pause. They're taking a break. But when we actually engage in singing, that changes. That there is a holistic dynamic of experiencing God that we enter into. And every single one of us has felt that at some point in our life. I was uh, teaching in one of our churches in Germany one time. And it was really interesting because I'm sitting in the second row uh, uh, waiting my turn to get up in the rostrum to speak. And we were going through the worship and they were singing... And I was struck by how much everybody sang. I mean, everybody was just singing with loud, gust voices. And I thought, wow, these people are really into it. And I thought, why is it that they all are singing and in my own church, at least half of you are silent during the songs? And it suddenly occurred to me, in Germany, from the earliest age, you are required to take music and you learn how to sing and play an instrument. You're comfortable with singing. You're comfortable with vocalizing. When I've been in Asia and different countries, primitive people in small villages, everybody sings. Nobody is concerned about the tone of their voice or how well they do it. None of them feel like they have to be Pharrell or Beyonce. They just get up there and just sing out loud because that is part of their whole cultural experience. And yet we live in a culture which has on one hand lifted musical performance to such a high level that most of us are so intimidated by our lack of superior skill that we either barely mumble or we don't sing at all. And I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry we've made it like that. I'm sorry that even in the church we have exalted musical performance to such a skill level that it intimidates ordinary Christians from feeling like they want to enter into an experienced worship. I am so terribly sorry. The best I can do is apologize for that really arrogance. But the simple fact is that that many of us are missing out on what happens on the inside in those inner sources of our life when we feel the freedom just to sing and as the psalmist said, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Maybe it is just a noise. But God doesn't view it as noise. I know God has a divine filtration system that makes your voice sound better than it does. Thank God for God. (laughs) But God takes joy in the expression of your heart. And there's a dimension of experiencing God that you miss out on. I encourage people who are intimidated about singing in group to just get a a praise album that you really like, you really enjoy, and put it on and listen to it and just sing along with them because your confidence will grow as you learn to worship God. And the experience of worshiping God in that way will free you from the intimidation that you may feel singing within a group. But when we talk about worship, there are some important distinctions we need to make. And first of all, I think we need to, the first one should be obvious, that not all music is worship, 
or at least worship of God. And I say that, qualify that a little bit, because everybody worships something. You know, people say, well, I'm not religious. Well, you may not be religious in the sense that I'm religious, but you're religious. You, you worship something. There's something that becomes the prime directive of your life that you're living for. That is your God. And so, but we have to understand that not all music is actually a form of worship. In fact, a lot of music could be categorized as antichrist. The airwaves are, are filled with music that glorifies things that God has made pretty clear that he really hates. Sexual immorality, rebellion against authority, violence, drugs, drunkenness, and even just philosophies that are anti-Christian. For example, I'm thinking about John Lennon's song, Imagine. Of course, we just, I don't know if you heard just last week that uh, um, uh, Yoko Ono, <laughs> yes, Yoko Ono says that she actually wrote the lyrics. I feel better about John now. You know, it's a beautiful song. It is a beautiful, winsome song. And yet when you look at what the lyrics are saying, it's so anti-Christian, it's scary. I can't sing it anymore when I hear it played because it's so defaming. When it says things, imagine there's no heaven or imagine there's no hell. Imagine that there's nothing to kill for or nothing to die for and there's no religion too. That really what is being put forth is a very pantheistic, atheistic view of reality and saying if we could all just get to this place where we'd be done with all of this there's no more no more patriotism there's no more religious faith we just all come together well what do we worship well we worship ourselves at that point and that has never really turned out well you know my wife and I have discovered that almost all of our arguments and fights over the years have come from one source Self-worship. We both can get angry with each other because we are not worshiping each other in the way that we believe that we should be worshipped. No, I, mean, I don't mean me not worshiping her. I mean she's not worshiping me. <laughs> I get depressed when I realize that you don't worry about me as much as I worry about me. That's, it's that self-centeredness that he is promoting that is the very thing that brings the chaos and confusion. And so it's like the doctor saying, I know exactly what's wrong with you. If you just drink more arsenic, you'll get better soon. If you define death as better. And that's the whole point. Drink the poison. And yet we, how many of us blithely sing along and don't even think about what we're saying or what we're even listening to? And I know the argument. Well, I just listen to the music. I don't listen to the words. You don't have to listen to the words. There's a passive message that is being pumped into your brain. And I'm not saying that therefore you should, you know, listen to only praise music. What I am saying to you is this. Listen to what you're listening to. Listen to what you're listening to. So not all music is worship, but also not all worship is music. You see, worship at its root means an expression of reverence and adoration of God. It's praising God. That's why James says, let him sing praises. 
See, worship can take any form you want. In fact, the, the Puritans used to say that their craftsmanship was done with a heart of worship. They built this kind of enduring and, and, and winsome furniture because they said it should be worthy of God. They were really taking Paul's words to the Corinthians and again to the Colossians in the most literal sense when he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. So the man, as he is plowing his field or planting his seed or harvesting his seed or building his house or doing these different things, is doing it with this idea in his mind is, I need to do this in a way that brings glory and honor to God. Now, in an, in an economy that is based upon planned obsolescence, that is intentionally designing things not to work after a certain point so that you have to repurchase the item, the issue becomes one of conflict. I remember years ago when they first came out with the, uh, the potato peeler. Uh, this was a new device. You could take this thing and it would peel a potato and it made the work so much faster than a, a housewife who was using a knife to do it. But they ran into a problem very quickly. People stopped buying them. After buying them out, then they stopped buying them. And they found out because once you had one, you really didn't need a second one. And so you ever wonder why the shape of the potato peeler handles is the shape of potato? That was intentionally done in the hope that somehow it would get thrown out with the peels. So you'd go back and buy it again. You see, the Puritans had a problem. That would have been ungodlike. That's not the way God is. And when you begin to apply that approach, that whatever I do, I want to do it in a way that it glorifies God. Not that we can all do perfect everything or we can build a house that will never fall apart. But I can just say, as my wife over the year, and I over the years have had remodeling done on a house, we've discovered things that the contractor did that weren't on the plans. And we're not quite sure how they passed inspection, except for the fact that the inspector really didn't inspect. But why did he do some of those things? To save money. And the reality is that's not how we glorify God. So that when we service a client, when we build a home, when we fix the plumbing, when we repair somebody's teeth, when we do these kind of things, God says, here's how I want you to approach this, not by how fast can I get it done and have a, uh, an income turnover, but how can I respond and do this thing in a way that glorifies God? That's what worship is. And that's why even when it comes to preaching a sermon, I can't assume that what I'm going to say to you today expresses a worship of God in my life but I pray that it does. That when I spend those hours going over what I'm going to say over and over again and thinking through as in specific ways and trying to be as accurate and balanced as I possibly can be in agreement with God's truth, I'm doing that because I want to worship God in this time that we spend together. When I listen to Eric and the team preparing and rehearsing, when I think about Mark adjusting the sound systems and the lighting and Logan, his team doing the, the videotaping and all this stuff that's going on around you that you don't notice because it's being done so well and it seems so effortless and so seamless to you, you don't realize that what's really happening is people are worshiping God in how they're doing what they're doing. They want it to be something that is worthy of him. So that 
Not only can we say that not all music is worship, not all worship is music. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not just an activity that we do once a week or twice a week. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living our life. And it's essential that when we are singing, that we worship God. Not the sense that I have this ability to produce this quality of music, but I recognize that the one who I'm singing to is worthy of my praise. And some people say, well, I just don't feel like praising the Lord. It never once says any place, I've looked for it because I wanted it at times, I've never found any place that says, worship the Lord and praise His name when you feel like it. It just says, sing praises to His name. Just sing praises to His name. Which is also why not all worship music is worship. That point was probably most poignantly made in recent years by Matt Redman in his song, Heart of Worship. And it's interesting because the church in England, which he, Matt, is a part of, uh, had a very, very impressive worship ministry, in large part because Matt is such an amazingly gifted musician and songwriter, one of my favorites. But the pastor one day said, you know, there's something wrong here that we're more caught up in the excellence of our performance than we are in the God who we worship. And so he said, here's what we're going to do until further notice. We're just going to sit and sing a cappella. In other words, no musicians, no music, no backup. We're just going to use our voices to worship God. And we're going to do that until we get it right. That, that's pretty bold. But it's at that point that Matt said he was sitting, praying about this and praying about his own heart that he wrote the song. And it has such beautiful lines in it, things like, I'll bring you more than a song. I'll bring you more than a song. He says, look what we've made it. Look what we've done with worship, God. We've made it into this commodity that we market and sell. And keep in mind, it's Worship music, praise music, especially the, the, the genre that's most popular in the church today, is today over a $50 billion a year industry. But I know one worship ministry that has a contract with a record company, and they get paid $100 million a year. Great songs, great worship. But the problem is, is at what point does tail start wagging the dog? And it happens to us all. We kind of get caught up in what's going on and we forget what we're really about. And that's what Matt was writing. He's saying, look what we've done to it. Look at what we've done to worship. Because you want more than a song. Because a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper. You're looking into my heart. So I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Again, Redmond isn't criticizing music. He isn't criticizing the skill with which it's delivered. I mean, I used to write a lot of Christian songs that the Lord would give me. And then one day in a quiet time with the Lord, 
The Lord said, would you stop blaming that music on me? (laughs) So I thought, well, that's apparently not my giftedness. But you see, I mean, when Moses was building the tabernacle, we look in Exodus 14 times in Exodus alone, he says, find men who are skillful craftsmen. He said, find men who have the skill to do it well, not just who are willing. There are probably many people who are willing to help out, but he says, I want this to be something that is skillfully made, that will not only endure the, the years of its usage, but will display the grandeur and the glory of who I am. And even the temple worship was led by individuals who were told in 1 Chronicles 25 were trained and skilled in music. So that the idea that somebody is trained and skillful in music uh, is important if they're going to be someone who is going to be leading and performing musically. I don't want to confuse us by saying it doesn't matter. I remember once we did a worship conference and one of the attendees asked the question why it was necessary for guitarists to tune their guitars in the middle of a set. And I was kind of surprised because the answer very simply from one of the musicians was because if you don't, it sounds terrible. (laughs) But sometimes people can take dissonance and make it spiritual. If God wants it to be in tune, it'll be in tune. If God wants us to be out of tune, I guess that's his will. Really, inflict that someplace else, you know. Take that other other places. But what he says is that music to be worshipful has to be more than just skillfully done. It requires worshipers. Worship leaders who are worshiping God and seeking to do more than to perform. They want to do more than just entertain But they really do want to exalt the name of Jesus. There are people, and and, and the people who come, you and I, as we come and partake of their gifts and their talents and their ministry to us, that we come as people who want to do more than just being entertained and more than just to listen to the song. But we want to worship God and we rejoice because they have facilitated the opportunity for us to enter into the experience with them. That we become a people who come to worship. That we come to express reverence and adoration to the God of the Bible. And then which leaves me really with a simple question for you. So what did you bring today? What did you bring? Did you simply come with an expectation? This better be good. (laughs) Or did you come with a desire to express praise to God? See, there's a big difference between music and worship. Music is an outside-in Experience. In other words, music comes from the outside and it enters in. And it, it can touch us in our souls. It can, it can fill our ears and it stirs our emotions and, and, and really connects with our souls sometimes. That most people who listen to music listen to what they listen to because they say, it connects with where I'm at in my life at this particular moment. 
And that's why KTL and the others can sell you all these nostalgia records. You know, you get 356,000 songs from the 60s, you know, and you pay only $395 a month for the rest of your life. But you get this collection and you sit there. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst of it. I'm sitting there watching PBS as they have these reunion concerts and they're playing all this music and then they have the live performance get on the stage and I see the performers as young men and they're up there dancing and the ladies singing and they're all good looking and handsome and, and then they show them now. They look like me. <laughs> hey. <laughs> you know, I just go, wow, you ruined that song for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I remember when the Rolling Stones played the Super Bowl and I was sure they were going to get their wheelchairs caught up in their mic cords. <laughs> but you have to understand that in some ways music is totally egocentric. People always say, well, I know the music I like. Truth of the matter is you like the music you know. We do this in the church all the time. Why can't they sing those hymns like they did in the old time? That was good music. Except you don't understand that when they were writing those songs, the elders of their generation were going, what is this newfangled stuff? <laughs> and that's not the point. We miss the whole issue by, by having our preferences. There's nothing wrong with having your preferences as long as you don't sanctify your preferences. Recognize your preference is your preference. Okay, fine. I got neighbors who were partying last night and their songs were not my preference. <laughs> and I got to figure out a way to break that subwoofer. <laughs> my cavities were rattling. Uh, the whole... I hope they're not sitting here right now. Anyway. <laughs> but that's the point. They do have the most weird collection of songs. Anyway, but, but we like it because we like it fine. I know people of my generation now who will not listen to Elevation, will not listen to Hillsong or any of the other uh, Bethel or any of the other major worship teams. I, I personally think are writing some, uh, for the most part, some pretty amazing worship courses. And they'll say, no, we should only listen to those written by Maranatha music. Do you realize that when Maranatha music was first coming out with its, its whole chorus of songs and records, that my generation was really drawn to it? And you know what our parents were saying? You brought the devil into the church. Drums? And I mean, as a hippie, I'm just scratching my, my hippopotamus head, just going, I don't get it. That's the problem with music. It is egocentric. You have what you prefer and, and it, because it speaks to your soul. And so when my, our anniversary came up, I, I, I bought my wife something I was sure she would really want. I got her the Beatles box set. And uh, she said, was that for me or you? <laughs> but you see what happens with music is it often focuses upon what our life experiences are like have been they have memories associated they have feelings at times you know it's like one time I said there are 
people and places I remember. You know the rest of the song? <laughs> In my life, <laughs> there are places I remember. Anyway. But how is that different from worship? Music comes from the outside and it touches me on the inside. Worship starts on the inside and expresses itself from the outside. This is what Jesus said when he said in John 7, streams of living water will flow from within. This is why we're told to sing a new song because what is being forged in our hearts is something that is unique to us. So that even though you and I may be sitting here singing a chorus of worship all together with the same lyrics at the same, hopefully at the same uh, tempo and rhythm and it's all in harmony and all the rest of that, but it's doing something different and unique in me if I am worshiping. It is God expressing something from my heart. Amen. And I can listen to a song and, and just enjoy it. And then I can listen to other songs. And it brings me to tears of joy because of what is going on in my heart. It's a new song for me that God is writing inside of me. It's a river that's not coming from outside and touching me. It's coming from inside and reaching out to the world around me. That rather than merely offering me comfort or consolation or whatever it might do, it says, as Paul told the Philippians, it lifts me up with Christ and seats me in heavenly realms with Him. That it takes me from the place of nobody knows the troubles I've seen to the place saying, Lord, you are worthy of praise and glory and honor. See, true worship leaves one with a distinct sense that you have entered into the very presence of God. Which explains in many ways why two people can sit in a room like this side by side singing the same songs and one of you feels close to God and the other feels nothing. That some of you came in here with an expectation that something was to be done to you or for you. Some of you came in here with anticipation looking with excitement to what God was going to do and how he's going to move and speak in your life. And I just would ask you, which one describes you? You see, the church has never been more musical than it is today. But my question is, is it more worshipful? Our ears are filled with beautiful and wonderful music, but are our hearts full of worship? I mean, that's why James gives a qualifier in this statement. Let him sing, but he says specifically, songs of praise. Songs of praise are worshipful because they exalt God. That worship covers everything in my life or should be an expression expressed through everything I do. But when it comes to singing, my worship has a particular orientation. That means to praise him and to lift him up. So again, what did you bring today? Did you bring a heart of worship or an ear for music? And I'll leave that answer with, to you. Father, I ask that you would challenge us, but also encourage us, Lord. You have given every one of us all the capacity necessary to worship you. And I grant, Lord, that some of us came into today, our lives are hard, our, our struggles are, are difficult. 
the weights we carry are somewhat overwhelming. The challenges in front of us can be frightening, if not just simply daunting. And yet, Lord, we come in this place, if we come expecting that this is the, the tonic that we can take and it will fix everything, then we'll probably leave as empty as we came in. But Lord, you said that you inhabit the praises of your people. That when we come and we sing and we praise you, when we look to you, we exalt you, you make your presence known to us in that moment. And suddenly, instead of wanting something that's said or sung to reach down into my heart and make me feel better, we find a river of living water starts bubbling up from within. And we just lift up the name of Jesus. We find ourselves seated in those heavenly places with you because we have worshipped you. You can't buy that, God. You can't discipline or train that into your life. You can just experience it. God, I pray that you'd move by your spirit that we might experience you in that way. In Jesus' name. Thank you.